Well, as you are being seated, if you would please turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue our study there tonight. Looking forward to it. Um, there's a lot of things uh, going on this time of year, and, and one fun picture I wanted to share with you is from something that the youth has been doing. We, every year we do a flag football tournament, and this year we decided to make it into a league And so for a month on Sunday afternoons, we have rented the Byron Nelson practice fields and we've gotten together and played flag football. And there are a variety of different talent levels, but we have had a great time nonetheless. This isn't everyone. This is everyone who showed up in the cold today. Um, I messaged them yesterday and I said, tell me, what do you want to do? And do your parents know how you're responding? And they said yes, mom and dad did know, but overwhelmingly they wanted to brave the cold and uh, we had a fantastic time, had some parents who helped us as refs and coaches, some college students as well, but we had a wonderful time and Michael Ryan wanted me to let you know that he took that picture. So I have told you that Michael took that picture. When it comes to our study in 1 Thessalonians, it's been a couple of weeks since we have uh, opened up this great book, and so what I'd like to do is kind of do a little bit of an overview, because it could be that this is your first time here on a Sunday night. Maybe you specifically came for the connection. Uh, It could be that you're still trying to overcome all of the wonderful things that happened last Sunday as we celebrated Tom and Sheila's 20th. It was a wonderful time and maybe you're reeling a little bit and you forgot some of the knowledge or it could be that you have slept since then. But I would like to walk through where we've been and then get to our passage today in chapter 2. With 1 Thessalonians, the theme is growth of a new church. I know some of the adult Sunday schools are like us. You're studying 1 Corinthians, a number of you are. Uh, The youth are studying 1 Corinthians on Sunday and Wednesday, and at some times it can be a a little rough because the book is about correction and condemnation. There's a lot of things that they're doing wrong, and Paul is addressing that. Well, here, Paul is writing them and saying, you're doing a great job, and the nations are hearing about your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and the great things that are going on, and so he starts out with the first section of the book stating that he is thankful for the Thessalonians, and you're familiar with verses 9 and 10 where he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So there's a lot of wonderful positive things going on in Thessalonica and it's continuing to grow. Paul expresses first of all his gratitude for God's work in others and these are Jonathan's lesson titles that he came up with in the first five verses. And then he talked about the impact of a healthy church, how, verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Isn't it remarkable? Isn't it beautiful to see that? These faithful Christians and the word, their testimony is just spreading like wildfire. Well, how did they become a healthy church though? How did they become a healthy church? Well, they first became a church when Paul visited them on his second missionary journey. And we see that section two, Paul is going to talk about the initial visit to the Thessalonians. He's going to talk about the initial visit to the Thessalonians. 
And uh, just a quick map to orient ourselves. We understand that Israel is right here, but they started in this area with Antioch, traveled over here between Lystra and Derbe. Then they're going to go to Troas, from there to Philippi. Then we have the visit to Thessalonica. And Paul, his typical practice was he would go to the synagogue and he would preach Christ as Messiah at the synagogue. Some accepted him, but others rejected him and hated him for it. So then he goes to the Gentiles and he starts to spread the good news there. And as believers place their, you know, these unbelievers place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this church is established and he's building and developing and growing. Well, eventually the Judaizers ran him out of town and he goes to Berea, then to Athens and Corinth, Ephesus, and then back to, back to Israel. In this initial visit, he first of all gives us a portrait of biblical ministry. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So here's our transition point. Chapter 1, he's talking about how he's thankful for them. Chapter 2, he starts talking about the first time that he visited. He said, but after we had already suffered and then been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And as Jonathan titled his lesson, this was the primary commitment of biblical ministry, and it is to proclaim the gospel of God. That's what Paul and his associates were concerned. They wanted to see men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ, so they preach the beautiful truth of Jesus. And then he gives us the parental characteristics of biblical ministry. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, I can't necessarily say that the youth would describe me as a mother to them, tenderly caring for them, but I, I hope that they see some elements there in that. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart for you to you, not only the gospel of God, but here we go, our own lives. Our own lives. They had tender care, but then they had a sacrificial love. Because you had become very dear to us. And then from the sacrificial love, we see their diligent work. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. They had a consistent integrity, for you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved towards you, believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So we had this tailored instruction, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, after a portrait of biblical ministry, we see the product of biblical ministry. And isn't this beautiful to see? Paul and his associates did things the Lord's way, and God is going to use that to save. And God is going to use that to establish, to build a healthy church. And isn't this counter to how the church does things today? 
the church is, is flashy and wants to appeal and, and wants to look just like everybody else to make the unbeliever feel welcome and comfortable. Paul says, no, don't do that. Love like a mother, instruct like a father, bring the truth of the gospel, correct, reprove, do what you need to do with the word. And you see the product of the biblical ministry is in verses 13 through 16. You see that the word was accepted. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as what the word of men for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in who believe. And Paul rightly gives the credit to who? He gives it to God. They spoke the word and they accepted the word as God's word because of God. And that's why Paul gives thanks to where thanks is due. The word was accepted. The word was effective. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. The result that they are always filled up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Some heard the word, accepted the word, and then the word was effective to save them and to grow and develop them. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is what? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and tensions of the heart. So that when we minister, why do we put our Bibles away? Why do we not speak this simple truth that God has given to us? This is how he changes lives. This is how he saves people. But not all people, as you even see in this passage, not all people are saved when we share the truth with them. Does the word always produce in this fashion? No, you have those Judaizers, you have those enemies that heard the truth and hardened their heart. And then they were antagonistic to Paul and they ran them out of town. But why is that? Well, also in Hebrews 4 verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard... Did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Same word, same message, but on some God prepared the soil. God called and he drew them unto himself. God saved and rescued them. Isaiah 55, 10 and 12. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout. And furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word by uh, be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So as we practice biblical ministry ourselves, we do it like Paul did, and we do it with the word of God, knowing that God will use the word if he so chooses to save, to build and to grow. We are still in the same section tonight, the initial visit to the Thessalonians, but now we are looking at the desire to visit the Thessalonians, the desire to 
visit. We have moved on from the recap of the, sorry, I should say that this is section three. We have moved on from the initial visit to now, where are they? He wants to join them. He wants to see them. Chapter two, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. With great desire. And the title of our lesson, and hopefully you didn't already write down six other things as the title, I apologize, is the desire to visit the Thessalonians. The desire to visit the Thessalonians. And why would he write this? Why would he include this? We understand how it works, right? This was a letter. And it was a letter that was received by the church. And the church would take it, and they would gather on the Lord's Day, they would gather on Sunday, and they would open it up. And they know Paul, and they love Paul, but he's not with them right now. But Paul has written them a message. You know, whether it be your child who hasn't sent you an email or called you for a long time, or maybe it's a parent or a friend or a loved one, and you haven't heard from them, we're going to hear from Paul. And we're all sitting there, and we're eager, and what's Paul going to say? When that happened at Corinth, they started to hear what Paul had to say, and they all go, oh. But here, man, he loves us. He's excited. People are hearing him. This is great. And now they get the best news. Paul says, I love you so much. I want to come visit you. I want to come visit you. That's, that's great news, right? And we can, we can sympathize with that or empathize with it to some degree, okay? If, if one of your heroes of the faith, if, if John MacArthur was coming to teach on Sunday night, he's coming to visit us. I think people would respond to that, right? You would come even if I'm teaching, so thank you for doing that. (laughs) Paul, the apostle, says, I want to visit you. I love you that much. He had all these different churches he wanted to go, but he's expressing his desire to visit. And he, this unique phrase, but we, brethren, haven't been, what, taken away from you. It literally means to to make an orphan. It's the only time used in the New Testament. It's like a part of Paul is missing. He loves them so much. It's like my family has been torn in two. That's how much he appreciated them. Keeping in mind, he didn't spend a, a terrible long time with them. But that's how much these Christians mean to him. And he says that we're what? We're eager. We're eager to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous, to take pains, to make every effort. It says, but we, brethren, having been orphaned from you, having been taken away from you for a short while. Remember, Paul was, was run out of town. That's why he didn't stay there. He had to leave. It says, in person, but not in spirit. He says, I'm still with you. Maybe not physically, but I'm still praying for you. I'm still thinking of you. We're all the more, what, eager with great desire, zealous to see your face. You think of that loved one that you haven't seen in a long time, and you want nothing more than to see them. FaceTime doesn't cut it, right? That's what Paul was like to the church at Thessalonica. That's what he was like. Galatians 10, we see the same word. It says, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Just like Paul says, look, we are happy to take care of the poor. We are excited about that. We are zealous for it. I am zealous to visiting you. It's not a burden for me to do that. 
We see the same as be diligent in 2 Timothy 2.15. We diligently want to make our way back. This church means something to him. This church is special to him. And our word great here that we find in verse 17, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. It's pertaining to, to being a high on a scale of extent. He would love nothing more than to come and spend some sweet fellowship with these dear believers. With these dear believers. In this, expressing his desire to visit, we see that he goes on to say this in verse 18. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For we wanted. They have something in mind for oneself. His wishes, his desires. Now, if you could sit down and you can think of wherever you could go, all right, you would probably choose to go to the United Kingdom and visit your family's castles and all of It's kind of a fun exercise, the, the gift that the church gave to Tom and Sheila. They got to sit down, just the fact that they got to sit down and think, where do we want to go? And I, I don't like to travel, so if you pick somewhere, I would pick South Lake. Sorry. But the other place, I actually would also pick the United Kingdom. I've, I've been to London once. It was really, really cool. So I think that would be a great trip. Paul here is saying, what I really wish, what I really want, is I want to spend some time with y'all. I want to spend some time with y'all. I want to hear how you're doing. I want to pray with you. I want to fellowship with you. But unfortunately, he has been hindered. And specifically, Satan has hindered him. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. The word hindered means to, to make progress slow or difficult. To make progress slow or difficult. And I, I might have shared with you before, I know I've shared with the youth, that there was one vacation that my, my family took me to, and, and we went to Arkansas. And you might wonder why I don't like to go places, but we went to Arkansas. And we went on this canoe trip. And Matt and Joel, my older brothers, were in one canoe. And me and dad were in the other canoe. And we thought it would be fun for this to be a race. Because then that way we could get out of the canoe faster. So we go and boom, they take off. And I'm trying as hard as I can. And I'm the youngest, but I got dad. And dad's got that old man strength. He's going, you know, I'm going and going. And then Joel is just farther and farther away. Well, what happened? I look back at dad. And he has both legs outside the canoe. He goes, look, it's like I'm an anchor. And I'm like, yes, I could tell you're like, he hindered me, right? Well, here, here, Satan is the one. And I'm not saying dad is Satan, okay? Don't make that connection. <laughs> Do not make that connection. He just wanted to enjoy the time. Satan doesn't want Paul to come back. Now, Why? Satan is opposed to anything that furthers the kingdom. He wants to isolate this church. He wants to whisper in this church's ear. He wants to tempt this church. He wants to intimidate this church. He doesn't want Paul to come back and strengthen them and say, you're doing great, let's keep going. Satan wants the church to feel alone. And so he's keeping Paul from doing these things. We see this, and uh, you can flip over to Galatians. 
It's not that hard. It's just to the left a little bit. Galatians 5. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. We know that the church in Galatia probably faced one of the the darkest days of all Christianity. Where they started to say, you need to add works of the law onto faith in Christ in order to be saved. And even Peter was, was swayed by some of this influence. A little bit of teaching here, a little bit of whispering here. And so what they want to do is they want to cut this church off. And we can see it with our children, right? The, the, child, the world wants to cut our children off of the wisdom of mom and dad loving, teaching, and instructing them. And they want to take the kids over here and they want to teach them things that are not true and turn them against mom and dad. Satan wants to keep Paul far away. So Paul, what? He definitely wants to go. He wants to go and be a part of things. In Galatians 5 verse 20, actually we'll, we'll go ahead and move on for that one. Let's go to, to number 2. Paul explains his desire to visit. So we see Paul, first of all, expresses his desire to visit. Well, now he's going to explain, and I know I've done a lot of explaining so far, but we're going to hear it from him, exactly why he wants to make this trip. Why, of all places, Paul, do you want to go to Thessalonica? What are your desires when it comes to interaction, fellowship, or discipleship with other believers? Are there people that you know you could love and pour into, but for whatever reason, laziness, busyness, whatever it is, you don't end up doing that? What are your desires when it comes to doing these things? Do you have someone that you love like Paul loves? Do you have someone that you share and you witness and you minister to that you have this special, beautiful connection like Paul does with them? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, look at verse 19 says, for who is our hope, our joy, or crown, or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are glory and joy. I love what Paul writes in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. God's people are our kingdom. God's people are, how does the Bible describe them? They're our family. They're the building. They're God's temple. They're God's nation. That's who other believers are to us. So even in this room, right, if you have people that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one with Christ, one with Christ, you are together. And although you might not necessarily know their name, you have a commonality in Christ, and Paul always kept the perspective that any Christian he wanted to spend time with, 
He wanted to spend time with it. It wasn't just the, the rich. It wasn't just the, the super cool. It wasn't just the influencers or the really good looking or the athletic or whatever it was. All Christians, he had this amazing bond and connection with. And we at our church have a lot of Christians, a lot of brothers and sisters. And so we want to pour into them and get to know them and interact with them and enjoy them. To explain his desire to visit, Paul, first of all, uses a rhetorical question. And we understand a rhetorical question. It's a question that we already know the answer to. A rhetorical question. What is this question in verse 19? For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Look, you know it's you. You know it's you. For who is this? But how does he describe them? To Paul, people like the Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, and his crown of exaltation. When we see the word hope here, that which is the basis or the foundation for hoping. Flip over to, to Colossians 1. Again, it's not that far. It's just a, a book over. Colossians 1. says, that is the very mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to know whom God willed, to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ is our hope, right? But the fact that other believers come to know Jesus and we can love and minister them also brings us hope. Brings us hope. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1. When we're talking about joy. Paul takes hope. So they are a basis or a foundation. Here was a people that was dead in their sins. Worshipping false idols. He shared the gospel. They became saved. And so he takes that into battle with him. Knowing that man. the lot, When I shared with them. God saved them. So the next time I'm going to do that. But also our joy. We see this in verse 9 of chapter 10. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath. Go to chapter 3. He writes again in verse 9. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And you could probably think through whether you, you know, you serve in children's Sunday school and there's that kid that actually listens. I'm sure there's a number of them, all the good parenting going around that listen. But maybe there's that special connection or there's that kid who comes to know the Lord. Or maybe you're serving in a Sunday school and there's someone that, that's new and they're really connecting and listening and growing. Or maybe you're taking someone through partners and they're just eating it up and they're, they're reading and... Those people that we minister to, what do they become to us? 
They become hope to us. They become joy. They become joy. I'm not just talking and no one's listening. God is speaking through me. God is using me. And it makes me want to do it more with other people. So it gives me hope there. But it also gives me joy. It gives me, gives me happiness. You know, on my, on my phone, there are um, you know, different iPhotos that pop up. So I've been the youth pastor for just a couple of years. And so I have a, a decade and a, and, and a half of pictures from the youth group. And sometimes a picture will pop up and it, it's a little sad because you're like, man, I know I love them so much. But they didn't love the Lord and they walked away. But then there's a lot of them that it's like, I remember them at Bible quizzing. And I remember the trip that we went on with them and how they served faithfully and how they read the word. And oh, it's great. I love it. Are there people that you're ministering to that you could describe like this? Sometimes we need to minister more. If not, we need to minister more. We need to do more. Or we need to get up and sign up for something and serve somewhere. People that respond and grow in Christ are hope and are joy. He goes on to say that they are his crown of exaltation. And we understand crown, right? That which serves as an adornment or source of pride. It's not just, I'm the crown, I'm a ruler here. But this is something that would be given to them and they would take great pride and they would enjoy it, all right? It's more than the participation trophy uh, that every kid gets, all right? This is something that's special. And when it comes to exaltation, it's the act of taking pride in something. And you're like, whoa, I thought pride was a bad thing. Well, selfish pride is, right? But we're rejoicing in Christ. We're knowing that it's really God doing the work through me, God doing the work in them. But wow, yeah. These people were an adornment of exaltation to Paul and to his associates. It's, it's a great thing. And he talks with other people. Uh, you think of, you know, Job when Satan entered into the throne room of God. And what did, jo- what did God say? Have you considered my servant Job? And in one hand, you're like, that would be cool. What if he said, have you considered my servant Justin? And then you remember the rest of the book and you think, well, okay, God, I'm all right if you don't bring me up before Satan in that way. These people, he wants to visit them because they are his hope, they're his joy, they're his crown of exaltation. When he rolls into that new town and he knows eventually they're going to run him out of town or they're going to throw stones on him or they're going to beat him, you know who he remembers in that moment? The Thessalonians. He remembers the Thessalonians. So here he wants to visit them. 2 Corinthians 7, 4 says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in our affliction. 2 Corinthians 8, 24. Therefore openly before the churches show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. So it actually goes both ways, right? Paul is the minister And now he's excited and he's boasting about them. But if you're being ministered to, how do you apply this? If there's someone that's leading you through partners, or there's someone that's teaching your Sunday school class, or there's someone that's running that Titus 2 discussion group or that home fellowship, you're the one being 
taught. You're the one being ministered. And when you listen and apply and do it, what do you become? You're a joy for the person that they're serving. Isn't that beautiful? It goes both ways. I want to serve more because I see the response and I see your faithfulness. But to others that are pouring into me, I want to be faithful and responsive so that it makes them want to pour into others. Pour into others. Well, that was our rhetoric question. Now we have a revealing statement. We have a revealing statement. It's in verse 20. Very similar to what we just saw in 19. For you are glory. You are joy. See this, read this full verse. Verse 19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory, for you are our joy. Glory here is honor as enhancement or recognition of status or performance. This is, you know, you're doing your job and your boss actually notices that you're doing your job and that you're not just like watching YouTube or killing time or whatever it is. And so they give you a promotion or something along those lines. You're being recognized. We can, you know, relate it to Mordecai. Remember the king couldn't sleep. And so he had someone read the the records to them and he realized that Mordecai had saved his life and he was like, oh. I need to honor this person. The Thessalonians were the honor for Paul. Paul's like, I don't need your money. I don't really need anything from you. You just keep doing what you're doing. You're my glory. This makes it all worth it. Makes it exciting for me. Fame, renown, prestige, that's nothing to minister to people and to see them faithfully walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's real glory. And again, we have joy. And you're like, well, did he forget joy earlier? Well, you can never have enough joy, right? Here we go. We have joy. You are glory. You are joy. Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see. And you're like, wait a minute. He wrote that to those at Philippi. Is he cheating on the Thessalonians? How are they his beloved brethren whom he longs to see? They are his joy. They are his crown. That's how hard Paul worked. He's saying the truth to both of them. It isn't just one church that he loves. It's all of the churches. And when he says, I'm praying for you, he really is doing it. He's loving all of them. He's hearing reports about all of them. He's praying for all of them. He wants to see all of them and visit them. Because that's what Paul's like. That's what we should long to be like. Do God's people bring you joy? When you hop in that car and you drive here for the Lord's Day, are they just an obstacle that's in your parking space? Are they sitting on your particular row? Are they saving too many seats or whatever it might be? 
are you getting invested and connected with these people? Enjoying them. Tonight we have the Countryside Connection. And it's a way for our leadership to be in one place for anyone that's new and wants to, to get connected with us or to a ministry to interact and enjoy that time together. God's people should be our glory, our honor, our joy, our hope. Why do we struggle with that sometimes? Well, we pursue materialism. We get distracted by things that aren't that important. We lose that sight or that focus or we get discouraged because we minister to some difficult people at times. Let's learn from Paul and let's apply this and be like him. As we conclude our passage, I just want to read it again and then I have a few questions I want to ask you about it. First of all, but we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while. In person, not in spirit, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, our joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. How do you think this made the church feel? I'm not getting touchy-feely on you here. They roll out the letter, they open that bad boy up, and Paul says, I want to visit you. And you're like, yes. You love us, you want to visit me. But then he goes on, and it's starting to get a little sappy. Wow. You know, Paul, I was dead in my sins. You shared the gospel. The Lord saved me. I repented and believed. And all I'm doing is simply just following this book. But that's what I'm to you? Whew. You talk about building people up. You talk about encouraging people. How do you think this affected their ministry? You know what? I, I want to go do this. I want to go be a missionary. I, I, I want to go be a pastor. I, I want to do this. When I see that Paul, if I look at his life and shipwrecked and starved and beaten and whipped and all that stuff, I don't know, don't sign me up for that. That's the tough part, right? But it was well worth it because of the people that he got to see saved and he got to see loving Jesus. And here we have a church who's healthy and growing and it's a model church. It spurred them on to do more. How does this change the way you consider others in the church how do you see the people around you or the people in your Sunday school or the people in your home fellowship are you even a part of those things do you just pop in and pop out and don't talk to anyone there's either an opportunity for people to pour into you yes please and then you to pour into other people and we live in different cities and we're different ages and we have different upbringings, but we are all united in Christ Jesus, building up one another for the glory of God. How should this affect the way you minister to other people? Are you praying for them? Are you 
reaching out to them? Are you loving them? Are you encouraging them in any way? This should spur you on to share the gospel to unbelievers, but also pour into and build up the believers. Well, I don't want to get too much into chapter 3. I, I believe it's, it's Lance next Sunday night, the bearded one. I saw him walking around here somewhere. I think Lance is going to go on next, and it's going to continue with this idea of him talking about the initial visit, but I, I don't want to spoil too much. He says, therefore, when we can endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. I want to go! It didn't work out for him to go at this point. So he's going to send in the substitutes, and they're going to do a great job, men that are faithful. Look at verse 6. It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. So sent Timothy, went and ministered to them, and he brought a report back. Now that he has come to us from you, uh, the good news of your faith and love that we always think kindly of you, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in our distress and our affliction, we were comforted about you through our faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. What a beautiful network. Paul, Timothy, these people, and how special they are. And as we close, I just really want God's word to be accepted. I want you to listen to it just like the Thessalonians. And then I want God's people to be precious and special to you because they are special to God. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is such a joy to gather together with your people and to study your truth. Through your Holy Spirit, you have revealed to us the very mind of Christ. And I pray that we would seek to apply it, that we would live like Paul. And we would live like the Thessalonians. That we would take joy in the growth and the development and the progress of others that we minister to, and that we would grow in Christ's likeness so that we would be a blessing to the elders and the teachers and the small group leaders and the partners leaders and the Titus 2 leaders and the Sunday school teachers that are pouring into us. Thank you, Lord, for discipleship, for growth and training. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.